Hello. Today I chat with Andres Gomez Emilson, who is the Director of Research and President at the Qualia Research Institute, which is a consciousness uh, institute. And Andres, in my opinion, is doing some of the best work on where we're headed with consciousness and what is consciousness. And he does it in this amazing way where it's informed you know, deeply by physics and math. And it's also informed by not just our normal states of consciousness, but these kind of psychedelic and meditative states of consciousness. And so we kind of dive into all of that and also, you know, chat about what it means for um, artificial intelligences to be uh, conscious and that he thinks that that they are not currently conscious, but it's an inevitable fact of reality that they will become conscious. And so when that happens, how to make them only experience positive emotions. So there's a lot of kind of juicy topics here and juicy research questions um, to, to explore in the future. And so I hope you enjoy this episode today with uh, Andres. Thanks. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. I believe that the best way to predict the future is to build it. And so I'm interviewing pioneers on the frontier to understand what the world will look like and the secrets behind how they're building it. These are insights from the frontier. And today I'm excited to chat with Andres Gomez Emilson. Andres is this brilliant consciousness researcher who is the current president of the Qualia Research Institute. Andres, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm excited to dive in. And um, it's it's one of those it's one of those beautiful kind of um, when parasocial relationships become you know a combo social you know because you have um, you know I've just watched some of Andres's uh, and we've met in person as well but like you, you it's like when you watch like a funny YouTuber and you know there's Andres has these amazing YouTube videos where he'll just spend an hour or two just like talking to the screen about consciousness and so now. We're going to kind of dive into to, to the, those ideas and how Andres thinks about consciousness um, and then kind of apply that to artificial intelligence and see how Andres is thinking about whether these AIs will be conscious or whatever. So but before we get to that, let's start, Andres, with just like what actually I want to ask you first, what got you down this rabbit hole of just like going hard on consciousness? <laughs> oh, wonderful question. I mean, I would describe myself as hyper-philosophical in the sense that like, I'm constantly wondering about the nature of reality. It's kind of like a condition, really. I mean, I'm kind of like impaired by <laughs> by that big, you know, worry and concern. So um, early on, I thought the way to kind of like understand reality was with math and physics. Uh, but around like the age of 16, I realized that consciousness was a much bigger mystery. And that, hey, actually, we have like really good models for physics. You know, we can predict what's going to happen in a particle accelerator. You know, the standard model is amazing. Obviously, physics is not solved yet, but like we're really, really far ahead, right? And then I realized, well, relative to that, uh, consciousness is, uh, you know, baby steps <laughs> at best. Actually, you know, a term that uh, I really, really like is from David Pierce, where he says that consciousness is currently in a pre-Galilean stage in that to give you like a metaphor this is apocryphal that apparently didn't really happen but there's the the saying of a uh, Galileo giving the priests the option to look through the telescope and them essentially saying I don't have to <laughs> I already I already know what is out there because I've read the bible right so <laughs> there's a bit of uh, I think like that feeling with respect to consciousness there's like all of these very strange evidence uh laying around and we're just not trying to make sense of it <laughs> and so uh essentially yeah, yeah just huge huge um uh opportunity a huge amount of mysteries and you know ultimately I think um what made me decide, like, hey, actually, let's uh, make a career out of these. Let's really focus on these. Was uh, kind of like getting like the sense that there is like leverage points. There are like very precise things that can actually be investigated that nobody is currently doing that will hopefully dramatically advance our understanding. So 
Yeah, that's yeah, why. <laughs> I, I love that. That's great, dude. No, that's a, a, a great. Um, well, I love you calling it a condition because I think sometimes I see my own stuff as a condition too, where it's like, it's like I have a dysmorphic relationship with respect to you. And I think, you know, for you and for I, it's probably started more dysmorphic, but then over time we've learned to like make them more of a positive relationship to like hyper curiosity, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Which is good. And then I also love what you said about like, yeah, physics consciousness is this funny kind of intellectual kind of nerd sniping which is like okay what is actually happening here and i think that the the nice thing with with what you're you know bringing to the table is kind of a um a more kind of formal kind of physicalism view of like hey we're not just we're not just philosophy of mind we're not just you know um psychology or neuroscience or computational neuroscience like it has to do all the layers on all the things um and so i think that that's a cool and, and then the final bit that you said is i think it, it you know the frontier is closer than you think so it's like you're you're there you're kind of learning about stuff and you're like oh my god there's actually there's leverage points here that you can like push on and so um with that in mind let's kind of dive into consciousness what yeah what what is it what is this thing <laughs> i love that question so i mean first of all i would say you know consciousness the word is polysemic just means so many things um i think there's like at least like 10 definitions i, I once i like sat down and found like 20 different ways of talking but there's like 10 like very common ones all of them are interesting all of them are fascinating you know all of them are like really worthwhile you know you go all the way from like self-awareness the idea of like oh being aware of who you are uh all the way to like the problem of perception you know like in what way is it possible that you know open your eyes and you experience you know representations of the environment um but there is one sense of the word consciousness which i think is kind of the deepest and the most profound and that is consciousness in the sense of qualia essentially the raw way in which con experience presents itself you know Classically, you know, when you were a kid, maybe you wondered, is the blue that I see the same blue that other people see? The blueness of blue, you know, it's like, how do you communicate that, that very, very difficult to express uh, quality of experience? So when I, you know, I say like, okay, the mystery of consciousness is uh, very deep. Usually I'm talking about, yeah, the qualia, the, the way in which experience presents itself. And what is that? <laughs> Why can that emerge out of essentially, yeah, like patterns of uh, what Chalmers describes as form and structure how can you get this quality of experience out of just form and structure that's very very deep deep puzzle cool yeah guys so it's like as you said there it's like something like perception is is one part of con it reminds me of um you know uh the previous title for this book that i was writing was what information wants and so i was like oh i need to understand information and there's just like there's like 20 different definitions of information yes. and so and so similarly for consciousness, all these definitions. And as you say, there's like kind of the simpler form, the like perception form, which might be like a, you know, a free energy principle, predictive processing. How do we take in sensory uh, data and then how does it turn into like concepts in our mind or whatever? But there's something almost more fundamental than that, which is this, this weird word, yeah, this qualia, which is that, that the thing, that the things almost have like a, a taste and a texture and a something, and a thinginess <laughs> to it, like a blueness to the blue. It's not just like, I am experiencing a zombie reality. It's like, no, I have these kind of perceptual through time moments of like, I'm experiencing blue and now it's green and now I see Andres' face. So, so okay, so if consciousness is this like qualia, this kind of like a uh, movie, this inner movie that's happening that like has kind of a texture to it, um, how is that occurring to us? Why, why, are we, why are we taking as input <laughs> this kind of cool movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll point out as well that... Um... It's a, it's a common misconception to kind of like limit consciousness to like sensory stimuli because really also, you know, like if you're dreaming, I would say you're conscious, even though you're not actually processing sensory input or not very much. Um, or if you, you know, take the right drug or go on a meditation retreat, you can have really powerful, intense experiences with very little sensory input. You know, you can go to a black room or sensory deprivation tank. So you can really dissociate the two. Um, and likewise, there's like a lot of like textures of qualia that don't correspond to sensor input, like, for example, like thought uh, and, and emotions. You know, you can have thoughts and emotions without, like, experiencing any sensory input. Uh, so, like, yeah, really kind of like the full movie that we are experiment, ex experiencing um, involves kind of like this assembly of represented sensory input, representing inter internal states uh, and things such as uh, thoughts. Now, why... Is this happening? Um, 
So <laughs> I, I could probably launch into, okay, like a one hour <laughs> long explanation for like the full model. But uh, I mean, I think like maybe to a first approximation, I will say that, you know, I, I looked really deeply into the possibility that consciousness is just maybe what it feels like to process information in specific ways, um, which would be like a very kind of like natural way of thinking of consciousness is, hey, the brain is a kind of computer, an information processor. So like maybe really that is all there is to it. And actually all of these textures of experience, <clears throat> the qualia of, of consciousness is just different kind of like flavors of computation, flavors of information processing. That's like a very, you know, very convenient. It would be, you know, it would solve a lot of things if that was the case. Um, but then there's a lot of things that like that really doesn't solve. Uh, a very, very big topic that I, I consider very central. It's definitely talked about in neuroscience and in philosophy of mind, but is usually kind of like, thought of as a secondary question, I think of it as like very, very primal, is the binding problem. That is, how is it that all of these pieces of information can actually come together <clears throat> into a unified experience, a moment of experience that, you know, kind of creates this collage, <laughs> all, all of these sensations simultaneously. Um, and uh, as much as I tried to reason about how like an information processing system would be able to do that, I wasn't able to find like a plausible mechanism. I mean, there's like many attempts you can look into, yeah, people like uh, Tononi with integrated information theory. They're kind of like looking at emergent <laughs> irreducible causality. Or, you know, you can, yeah, look at kind of like the classic functionalists like Hillary Putnam and, you know, their theories of, of how to make sense of these. Um, but I never, was never able to find like a way to solve the binding problem. So really I required kind of like a, complete reframe of, of what is going on. And I think I can like, you know, maybe in a, in a couple of minutes, kind of like articulate the, <laughs> the very big picture. And before so, you, before you do, let, let's, ahead, let's do ahead. that in a second. Yeah. Yes. It's a, um, but yeah, like as you're saying it is, so we have this, this movie or whatever, and we're trying to, and it's like, okay, how to, in, in like the simple frame of this is just like, look, it's what it means to, um, uh, compute. Uh, we're, we're just, we're just computers who are kind of computing information, computing sensory and from, you know, input. And that that is, um, and that's kind of that kind of gets at some of it, which is like, oh, and that's again like predictive processing adjacent stuff, where you're taking in sensory input and then turning them into concepts or whatever. But but a kind of a more crucial kind of piece of this is this binding problem, which is like, how does it? How do you get this um, holistic, um, a moment by moment experience or whatever? Of like, this is what is now, and now it's now, and and now I see the sun, and now I'm tasting strawberries, and like. And and then and to have that experience instead of some kind of just like just like information and input or something and here's a concept <laughs> here's a concept or whatever. Um, okay, so I think I get that. And so um, and, and and by the way, for for the listeners to know that there's this great uh, you know Andre does this great kind of hour long video on the binding problem. So, but tell us what how did you how did you reframe yourself to kind of solve? We can't because it's hard to bind stuff when you're like okay, we're trying to like bind. Um, this, the taste of the strawberry with the, the, you know, the eye, the red of the strawberry. And it, it sounds like that might be difficult to do or whatever. So how did you kind of reframe the binding problem to solve that? Yeah, there's a, a very big kind of like ontological reframe, which, okay, if, if I say that probably, you know, it sounds very, very, I don't know, cultish or maybe uh, religious or something, but this has happened in, you know, in science a whole number of times. And like, for me, like a very big inspiration is how electromagnetism came to be. Because in the 19th century, people were like really trying to make sense of electromagnetism in terms of like atoms and forces. It's like, okay, like there's like some particles, you know, they can affect each other at a distance. How do we explain, you know, like a capacitor <laughs> based on that? Or how do we explain the right-hand rule? <laughs> this like thing that breaks the symmetry because, you know, you're applying one force in one direction and you get a force in an orthogonal direction. Makes no sense. It's a very, very strange behavior. <laughs> and the truth is, I think you can't. You can't actually explain electromagnetism with forces and particles. You need to instead reframe like what reality is made of and instead realize that, hey, actually, reality is made of fields. Um, and the way in which the fields evolve are um, ruled by these differential equations. So essentially, you know, it's kind of, there's this huge blanket, <laughs> which can become like tense or curly, you know, it can be twisty, can be um, kind of like stretched. And the way in which the blanket evolves has to do with how those forces uh, move around in the blanket. 
And all of a sudden, hey, that has enormous predictive capacity. You know, you can make very strange predictions about what that entails, confirm it in the lab. And yes, it turns out that this field ontology is so much better at making sense of electromagnetism. I think we're going to experience the same in philosophy of mind. You know, there has been a good number of people talking about consciousness as a field, but really have been very marginal, you know, taken as kind of crackpots or <laughs> at the periphery. I think that's going to be one of the very big revolutions of the of this century is reframing, you know, the problem of consciousness from, hey, how do you get all of these discrete neurons to kind of implicitly create, you know, causal structures or information structures that correspond to consciousness? And instead, reframe it as, hey, how do you get the fields of physics to essentially get together in the shape of a consciousness, <laughs> of a human consciousness? And how do you get that shape to be useful for computation? So really, it's kind of a, rather than thinking of, okay, what information processing leads to consciousness? We turn it on its head and think, oh, what kind of field behavior leads to useful information processing? Because then if we have that, then we have an ontology we can point to and say, yes, yes, that state of the field is a state of consciousness. And it's useful because if you evolve that field, according to laws of physics, it can process such and such information. Cool, cool. Yeah, let me, let me kind of play that back. But yeah, it's like that there's a... Um... Yeah, we've had these uh, these kind of paradigm shifts within our um, understandings of reality um, through time. And that um, one of those was in um, with electromagnetism. And it's funny because I've kind of uh, personally dodged. I think I, I like to think of electromagnetism as anti-memetic, um, just like kind of quantum <laughs> theory is anti-memetic. There's things like, you know, passwords that are anti-memetic. Anything that's in four-dimensional space is anti-memetic. These are things that are tough for our little brains to get, and it's also tough to share them. And so um, something like electromagnetism is just kind of like, there's this thing that we can't really see that is um, hard to understand or whatever. And, 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 and I guess what you're saying too is that it was especially hard to do when we were kind of viewing it in this kind of simple kind of forces and particles way, which is kind of more natural to us and like feels more like the real world, which is if I push the chair, it like goes, you know, it goes into the other room. And instead, we just need to reframe it in terms of, yeah, fields and blankets. And then once you do that, then that kind of uh, metaphor, that kind of conceptual, that concept handle, it really, really helps. So I think that that, and it makes me think about this kind of the concept handle of the, the computer and the computer as a metaphor. And that we've kind of been maximalists at the kind of computer metaphor. It's like society <laughs> is just a computer and our brains are just a computer and everything's a computer. And, and now you're saying, no, fields, uh, we talking fields, we're fields, baby, we're fields, we're um, fields maximalists. <laughs> So, so tell us, so now, so we have this field and I, and I would put, I was, you know, looking at this the other day, the Wikipedia page of like electromagnetic, electromagnetism theories of consciousness or whatever. Yeah. So that's within this thing where we have our brain, it does have all, I know this is the simple form, but it has all these neurons, these force, these particles that are like doing stuff. How do you take like all these, um, the neurons moving all their electricity around and how do you view that from a from a field and why does that actually help with the binding problem <laughs> oh fantastic these are yeah these are like super important very uh pointed questions so um a lot of like recent evidence indicates that the actual field configurations in the brain are causally significant so there is a school of thought in neuroscience that sort of thinks of brain waves as kind of just reflecting what is going on in the neurons. You know, the neurons are kind of these gigantic <laughs> cellular automata that follow discrete rules. And brainwaves is just kind of like, hey, that's that's kind of like measuring what's going on at the low level, but from a, you know, a high, large scale perspective. Then there's like a different school of neuroscience that essentially assigns actual causal effect to the brainwaves, <laughs> to the actual field configurations. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. I mean, the the, the field to look into is called uh, ephatic uh, coupling, which is how like the aggregate, you know, statistical activity of neurons manifests as what's called local field potentials. And then those local field potentials, essentially from a top-down perspective, have influence on the probability for neurons to fire. Uh, something that, uh, for example, uh, Jojo McFadden or Susan Pocket uh, postulated, like. A, Oh, I think more than a decade ago, was that, hey, a moment of experience might actually be this patchwork of local field potentials. Like if you kind of like aggregate all of these local field potentials, that would kind of like actually contain the information that is expressed in your in your experience. But there's a 
one problem there, which is that just because you have oscillations in a field, I mean, it, it, it solves the problem of how do you integrate the information because the field is already inherently integrated. But then you actually have a different problem, which we call the boundary problem, which is, well, actually, if the field is, yeah, it's just, you know, universally connected, then how do you actually get to break it down <laughs> into discrete moments of experience? So you go from the binding problem to the boundary problem. But unlike the binding problem in the forces and particles world, I think the boundary problem in the field world is actually solvable in a fairly straightforward way, which is what we propose, which is topological segmentation. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is not invoking exotic physics at all, you know, like topological phenomena and electromagnetic field is like a very active, extremely broad area of research. You know, it's very formal science. This is not, <laughs> I'm not postulating like a new, you know, physics phenomena that have never been observed or anything like that. And uh, essentially, you know, there's various metaphors to kind of like give you an intuition for what, you know, a topological segmentation in a field might look like. You know, a, a good intuition is if you kind of like think of the field lines as, yeah, kind of like, you know, a race, uh, a race card or something like, or, or like a little, um, yeah, I guess like indications for how to move. Ultimately you can think of them as, okay, where the electron is being pushed towards. Well, a topological segmentation of the field would be one case where the field lines essentially loop around. And so they're not, uh, kind of like open or connecting to other objects, but they're creating a closed loop so that if you're kind of like following the field lines, you will be trapped in there. And I think like that kind, that would be kind of like the simplest uh, case, but like that kind of phenomenon is one where, hey, this property of the field, it doesn't depend on the observer. It doesn't depend on your interpretation. It's actually just there and it's happening. And on top of that, and here's kind of like the big, uh, the big thing that ties everything together is that when you have these topological pockets, then that gives rise to phenomenons like resonance that essentially within the pocket, the whole thing may actually vibrate as a unit, kind of in the same way that a, a guitar, <laughs> because it's rigid, the sound of a guitar is kind of the vibrations of the entire guitar at once. When you have a topological pocket, the way it vibrates, it expresses the shape of the entirety of the pocket. So that is kind of like one way in which, okay, the actual topology of the field, the way it's partitioned can be useful from the point of view of natural selection can be used by biology for different purposes. And, you know, ultimately I, I suspect like topological pockets in fields will show up in biology, not only for consciousness, but for many other things, <laughs> but especially for consciousness, I think that's going to be the, yeah, deciding like, okay, there's an actual objective boundary that is separating the part of the field that corresponds to your experience versus everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, so just to kind of, yeah, replay that back. It's like, do you have, yeah, it's funny because like we mostly think of like sticking on some brain waves on the or sticking on some an EEG or whatever on someone's thing, and then you kind of read it off, and you're like, okay, cool, um, that's what's happening, you know? It's like that it is a read off of of what's happening with the brain. But actually, what you're saying is that there is this, um, you know, emphatic coupling or whatever, which is um, these local field potentials. Where yeah, the when you have um. It starts with like the neuron firing, but then you have, you know, 10, you know, a hundred billion neurons in the brain or whatever. And so they're all doing stuff that's creating some kind of weird, you know, oh, you and I have these electric field potentials, just like blah, 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 blah. kind of like the earth <laughs> has like a magnetic field, you know, you know, buzzing around it from all the iron inside. It's like we have this field potential and that obviously has some causal um, weight back onto the, the neurons and how they're going to fire and all that kind of thing. So that kind of um, that makes some sense. And, and then, and so now we have, um, you know, and you can think of all these neurons that they're in this kind of field. Um, and you have a, as you said, it can, in, in terms of needing to bind them all together. I, I love what you said. That's like, it's not, we're not binding. The binding problem with uh, forces and particles is very hard to solve. But the boundary problem from a field perspective is easier because there are these like naturally occurring loops. And, and the way I kind of think about that um, kind of from a macro perspective is, you know, like a Friston adjacent perspective is that there's a... Um, you know, it, you know, we just have these non-equilibrium steady states that exist in the world. And so some of them are something like 
um, you know, the Earth orbiting around the sun or the sun orbiting around um, the Milky Way. It's like those are kind of that's in like a blob in equilibrium around a thing. And then similarly, like a fish moving through the ocean is kind of um, doing its own predictive processing, whatever, to like be like, I want to be in the water. I'm going to stay in the water. And then a bird does the same thing in the, the sky. And I what I'm hearing from you to some extent here is that there are these um, when we have these field potentials, which is where these electrons are moving, these like probabilities of where they move, sometimes they create loops. And so sometimes they create these like little orbits that occur. And so once you get in an orbit, just like the earth doesn't just randomly go shooting off somewhere random. It's like, there's a thing that you can point at. That thing has a boundary. That thing is existing. We can point at it and give it a name. And we call that thing consciousness or the feeling of blue or whatever. Is that, <laughs> is that all, is that kind of the, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, the, just the last thing to wrap it up is, I mean, everything you said is, uh, yeah, a good a restatement of what I said is yeah, yeah, yeah. that when you have these boundaries, then you also have holistic behavior, like they act as a unit. And that's, that's, yeah, kind of like very helpful for like, yeah, maintaining your own boundary, you know, <laughs> reducing your free energy. Like there's a kind of like a lot of things about like, hey, like if you can act in a coordinated fashion, right? Like it's, it's not only about like, oh, like each of parties kind of like doing its own thing, but now the whole is acting as a unit. Yeah, that I think like has enormous evolutionary <laughs> implications. I, I also wouldn't be terribly surprised if there's also like, <laughs> you know, the more esoteric crazy part of this is uh, probably like non-trivial topological pockets might even be like disembodied, but like still have like an evolutionary process where they're minimizing their own free energy, maintaining their own boundaries, forming coalitions, <laughs> things like that. That might be happening in the sun. You know, it's very speculative, but I think it's uh, not not impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. So, and, and I think you're right to say it. it's like, yeah, just thinking of them then as a unit where it's like, okay, once a thing we can point at the earth and say, look, that's a unit. That's like a thing that seems to be acting in a certain way or like, look, that fish in the water, it kind of has a thing that it does. And so I think similarly, once you get something that starts looping, uh, you're like, it starts to then other things are around it. And so they can kind of interact with each other, not at the my, kind of macro micro scale, but at the kind of um, quote unquote emergent, uh, you know, uh, macro scale. So I think, so, so I guess one other question on this is, so this is, um, so you you know one frame on this is like you're you're a random guy in 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 a, in a in your bedroom or whatever and like there's all these people that exist out there and I know and you have this amazing research lineages um thing and all this stuff but like <laughs> how are you thinking about like and this is a kind of a general question I guess there's like a couple questions here but one of them is like there's like the normal consciousness researchers you know like you know the the David Pierce's and the um uh, whatever the hard problem of consciousness guy and all that stuff. And so it's Chalmers, like, yeah, how, yeah. Chalmers, Chalmers, thank you. I was like, and another freaking David, you know? Um, <laughs> so how you're a non-David trying to interact <laughs> with like a system of philosophy and science and consciousness. How, how do you interact with them? How does, how does that, how does this all work? <laughs> <laughs> so tricky. Oh my goodness. I would say, so I would say I am an unbelievably grateful for the life path that I chose. However difficult this has been to, to, to get here, uh, I would say it actually provides some affordances for doing research that would not be possible in academia and would not be possible in industry. Um, it's obviously was very unconventional for me to do this. Uh, you know, to, gi to give you a sense, like, um, I don't think I tell this to a lot of people, but like, when I finished my master's, I talked to like, probably about like a hundred different like professors in a number of universities about consciousness. It's like, okay, like if I'm going to do a PhD on these, like who should I work with? And I was just unbelievably disappointed that like even those who expressed interest in consciousness, if you dig into actually what they were doing or caring about, they actually care about something adjacent to consciousness. Like for example, like learning <laughs> or, or memory or, you know, cognition or something like that. Um, not like actually intrinsically motivated by things such as like, hey, hold on, hold on a second. But what is these Janus states or what are these, you know, <laughs> what is a DMT state of consciousness? That seems like really essential to make sense of these phenomena. That just wouldn't be a research topic I would be able to get an advisor on. Uh, at least definitely not in, you know, 2013. Maybe, maybe times are changing. <laughs> um, but essentially, yeah, kind of like, hey, if we actually want to tackle the problem, you know, 
uh, directly, not in just these circuitous routes. We need to essentially create a, a contingent of like really smart, dedicated people who like actually care about solving this problem specifically. And uh, yeah, talking with like a few like friends, we co-founded the organization and essentially decided to okay, like what intelligent kind of a informative, constructive, synergistic research lineages would essentially be able to come together to create this a new perspective on the science of consciousness. And yeah, that's how we, we arrived at the, uh, the lineages. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been slowly modifying them, updating them over, over time. Actually, I think like the vision for the lineages in the long term is going to be to have essentially kind of like a, the full graph of how people have influenced each other and like which parts are like really promising. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, things such as like caring about harmonic resonance, the binding problem and valence are, yeah, I think like really, really critical. Uh, that's the other thing um, I didn't find in academia. It was people deeply caring about like uh, valence as a research topic and or prioritizing intense suffering or prioritizing extreme happiness as like a phenomena to understand. Completely mm -hmm. bare. I mean, again, like maybe times are changing, but <laughs> uh, definitely was not possible at the time. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, how are you like, well, so an A, just for anyone who's, and I'll put this in the show notes, but the research lineages are just, it's like, it is amazing. I love the, um, the research lineages. Let me just kind of pull them up because it's, it's like a, it's just an amazing, um, and I think that all, all, anybody who does anything reasonable in the world, who's trying to like push the frontier should have a page like this. Um, nice. yep. and it has formalism lineages with like you know these david marr and the three levels there kind of the, the as you said the um Giglio tonini the kind of information theory stuff emily nother with the kind of um uh what are the what is the oh the gauge theory so, so it all self-organization lineages so, you know friston you know phenomenology david pierce etc and so you just like an amazing amazing list of <laughs> um of research lineages there and and so i guess andres what i heard from you and i experienced obviously the same thing was um going into academia a bit and being like oh this isn't really they're kind of not um different incentive sets not weird enough whatever um don't, don't care enough about like maybe the true hard things that need to be solved how do yeah. you um uh so but i guess i have a question for you just like so you're out here being like look the binding problem <laughs> we should think of the binding problem as a boundary problem it's actually let's talk about field behavior and you know electromagnetic stuff and um and uh so how will you will like eventually will do you like say hey um uh not david pierce but the other david um <laughs> david chalmers yes David Chalmers, you say, hey, Chalmers, like, yo, like, this is what I think, or like, how, how is your work going to relate to the more general field of consciousness science? Yeah, look, well, I, I have the deeply held belief that uh, if you do the work that you think matters the most, eventually you will be able to sync up with others who are also in the same wavelength. <laughs> I actually read that also from uh, John Lilly, who, you know, he had like very unconventional path. I, I don't recommend his extreme drug drug use towards the end of his life or anything, but that's essentially something that he says in um, the center of the cyclone. I believe he just says like, yeah, his life path, life career was uh, choose to work on the things where he thought like he had a really good chance of making breakthroughs and just assume that, yeah, other people will recognize them and sync up with them when the time comes. And uh, I think that's kind of the strategy we've pursued um, in practice. Uh, actually, a lot more people read our material than like, people read philosophy, academic philosophy of mind papers. If you, you know, look at quite, what is the average number of times that a philosophy of mind, you know, paper gets two, read. You know, yeah, two. exactly. There you go. <laughs> um, whereas, I don't know, I have like blog posts that have been read by like m over a million people, right? Or like, so it's like, I think the strategy in terms at least of outreach definitely has worked pretty well. Uh, there's still so much more to go in that direction. But then in terms of kind of like, okay, like credibility market markers, uh, interfacing with a broader community, um, there's kind of like a couple approaches there. We are essentially starting to publish in academia. Uh, last year, we published the, the slicing problem. You can see on my, my Twitter, the pinned post. It's kind of like a, <laughs> thank you, a, a thought experiment that I think like provides a really <laughs> compelling reason to uh, discard functionalism as a, as a theory of consciousness, uh, or at least like put it in question. Um, and then we, this year, we're also, we're aiming to polish the solution to the binding problem. Uh, and also like some uh, un, yet unpublished, and uh, we haven't discussed too much about this, but more research on valence uh, specifically. Uh, but then I think like 
the most exciting part of kind of like how we're going to interface with science. I mean, of course, yeah, philosophy of mind, super essential, very important. Let's build the foundation. But then where I think like we will push the boundary really in a, in a very substantial way is essentially by being able to make like predictions about how things such as psychophysics or perceptual tasks will behave on exotic states of consciousness. Um, one kind of empirical piece of work that we have here is called the, the tracer tool. We have this like method for essentially visualizing how visual tracers look like on psychedelics. Uh, that alone already has given us some like insights that in academia don't exist. For example, um, we have we have like ways to prove that a DMT produces quote unquote very high frequency hallucinations. Essentially, the flickering rate is like much higher than an LSD. That just like shows up in our tracer tool. People replicating their DMT versus LSD, and like you know that's a very concrete finding that comp- absolutely publishable is like the sort of thing you know, definitely should be in academic, you know, uh, psychedelic research, and we're moving in, in that direction. It's also the thing that allows us to collaborate with other labs, because how to say this, um, in consciousness research, the typical approach is to take a bunch of tests that were developed for people who are in normal states of consciousness, whether they're personality or perception tests, neuroimaging tests, and then, you know, throw them at people who are in exotic states of consciousness, let's say on LSD or ketamine. But if you think about it, like, what are you going to learn by giving like an IQ test to somebody on ketamine, right? Like <laughs> they don't perform as well, but like, okay, what did you learn? <laughs> Not very much. They were um, on ketamine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So what we can add, you know, the value add that I think is very substantial and what motivates labs to actually collaborate with us is that we can because of the epistemology that we have, you know, a network of really hardcore, technical, smart psychonauts and meditators, we can construct tests that actually measure something relevant, meaningful, and non-trivial about the state that essentially you need to have experienced it to know in advance, hey, this is worth studying, right? It's kind of the tracer tool, right? Just by from <laughs> looking at questionnaire answers, you wouldn't know, hey, like DMT produces higher frequency stuff. You need to actually figure out that's something to study and then actually studying it. And likewise, um, we're developing a whole bunch, <laughs> a whole bunch of like tracer tool-like um, uh, things in our in our toolkit. And I think that probably will be the most significant point of contact with uh, the broader academic world. Cool, cool. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's, it's interesting because like, you know, how to, um, and, and I like what you're saying, and I, I pretty much believe the same thing, which is like, find your niche, contribute to it you know find your frontier and just like be an awesome person that's like helping and building stuff and doing whatever's there and then eventually you'll find the other people that are like oh you're also chatting about friston stuff what's up let's like get on a (laughs) podcast together and so it's like it's easy to then kind of collab and i think it's and i think it's cool and i kind of think of it as like in some ways the an academic paper i think the reframe is like the academic paper is the intellectual exhaust of the actual work you're doing um, mm. where it's like mm-hmm. you're doing the actual work you're doing thing and then yes it gets turned into a paper and that paper gets submitted to a journal and blah 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 and it goes through a more rigorous process which is all i think exhaust is a little bit too much of a, of a straw man but i think that that's yeah. rough correct um and then and really where you're at is being able to push on the kind of um, on valence to push on these like predictive tools to push with these, you know, this, this squad of psychonauts you have. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting and cool. And I hope that it kind of, um, yeah, that over time, the kind of the field catches up or whatever. Um, one, one other question I have for that before we go to the AI thing is like, tell us a little bit more about, you know, cause the QRI world is so funny because um, I remember when I first looked uh, you know, up you guys up. <laughs> webs you know x amount of years ago and i was like who are these people and um <laughs> qualia research institute that's what it stands for and, and even the word qualia you're like what the hell is this thing and then so you kind of dive deeper and they got you got all these weird kind of um images and you know colors and stuff and then you're like okay and the most the thing i mostly took away is just like okay it seems like they like to do psychedelics you know like <laughs> some of the energy and so but tell us more about how you um but i actually think it's a really smart smart frame which is how do you kind of use psychedelics as part of your like research program to to try to find out like what in or is there anything especially interesting with you know dmt or whatever that you've learned recently that's like can kind of help <laughs> us understand how it helps to do psychedelics in study consciousness yeah yeah i mean we have a, a guide called um yeah guide to writing uh useful or scientifically helpful uh trip reports which kind of like mm, how to say this like there there's like millions of trip reports out there um 
But most of them focus on the narrative content, essentially like, hey, this is what happened. Then this entity told me this, and then it made me think about my grandmother and then whatever, just like the, the path of like what happened is kind of like what people over-focus on for very sensible human reasons. You know, it's kind of like what really had kind of an emotional grip, obviously. Um, but that's not very helpful because let's say the same narrative can arise from like salvia or DMT. You know, in, in both cases, you might have like met a dragon and then like, <laughs> you know, talk to the mantis people, but the texture of the experience was completely different, right? So the narrative doesn't capture what we think is actually the most substantial, the most important. So we have kind of these like focus on what we call the phenomenal character, like what the experience feels like in very precise, you know, technical, accurate terms. Uh, a very big inspiration for, for this is uh, Daniel Ingram, who wrote uh, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. The way he describes like meditation states in that book is like top notch. You know, I, I would say he's like a world-class phenomenologist for meditation. A lot of kind of like the psychedelic work at QRI, interviewing these like really advanced mathematicians and physicists who also happen to be psychonauts. Really, you know, the conversations focus on the phenomenal content. You know, of, of course, you know, we might talk about some personal stuff, but it really, okay, like the, the, the juicy stuff is, hey, in what way did these uh, have any relationship with anything mathematical that you may know of or you may have experienced before, you may be working on? And uh, essentially, yeah, we've developed this overarching framework where we can explain a lot of things in exotic states of consciousness in terms of, uh, there's several buzzwords, but one of them is psychedelic thermodynamics, like the energy flow <laughs> in the system. Uh, what functions as energy sources, what functions as energy sinks, I think has enormous explanatory power. Uh, annealing, uh, for those who are curious, look up neural annealing um, and also its application for healing trauma. Um, and so like things things like that, um, very unique perspective. I think like very fresh. Nobody's, as far as I know, kind of like using this kind of angle. Um, um, very on top of my head, you know, something that I'm thinking of obsessively these days is uh, <laughs> uh, because I have like some very credible, you know, reports recently. I've interviewed some like really credible. I mean, one of them was like an MIT, you know, math professor for a while and like only started taking psychedelics in his 40s. But essentially, yeah, people of that type of caliber um, have recently told me that, yeah, they've had like some very... Um, clear experiences where they experience not only hyperbolic geometry, that's, I'm, I'm very convinced of that. I've presented a lot of arguments for, for hyperbolic geometry on DMT. I think that's a very solid case. But the more exotic kind of like new stuff is higher dimensions. And essentially, there does seem to be some four-dimensional behavior, like orthogonal rotations <laughs> that can get activated on the right dose of DMT. And, and it's not any dose. It, it cannot be too little or too much. There's kind of like a a window for that level where like th that behavior happens. Uh, and right now, yeah, I'm just kind of uh, obsessively trying to figure out how to, <laughs> how to prove this, you know, what kind of a task would show, Hey, this person is actually embodying a 4d rotation. And like, if we could do that this year, you know, I would be <laughs> ecstatic. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It's, it's, and I think it's a great kind of, it's just like the world of psychedelics overall is just obviously a frontier in, in different ways. And it's, you know, sad that whatever, we're 50 years behind it and that it can, you know, do all this help with PTSD yeah. and trauma and stuff. And it's like, you have the, the pure kind of simple recreational frame. Then you have these um more kind of narrative, how to change your mind frames, which are like, oh, like, how do you change? Like, you're like, how do I like, you know, recover from my mom's death or whatever, you know? And so like, um, and then this one that you're talking about, I was like, yeah, just stick a bunch of, you know, physicists and, and, and mathematicians, <laughs> have them do it. And then ch chat with them in a very kind of rigorous manner about their experience and then really try to get to the qualia level, the phenomenological level um, and, and, and how to show that. So I think that's that's juicy and exciting. And if anybody's listening who um, has experienced these 4D states on DMT, definitely hit up Andres, you know, Yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> if you want to go deeper on that. Um, the uh, So Andres, I want to I ask in the kind of the last kind of 10 minutes we have here about um, – uh, artificial intelligence and whether that can be uh, can exhibit consciousness or whatever because um, we're getting you know we're you know we're moving quickly blah 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 we'll all be killed by AGI within you know but you know <laughs> um, maybe hopefully not um, and, and you had a tweet recently that was like as long as we use digital computers large language models uh, like chat GPT or whatever um, we'll never be conscious so, so tell right. us why that's true <laughs> totally totally so 
I mean, co computers are conscious, but they're not conscious in the sense that the programs that they're running actually come together to form, you know, data structures that themselves kind of like, there's no consciousness that is tracking the programs. There's no consciousness that is tracking the algorithms <laughs> that the machines are running. There is consciousness at the microscopic level. I mean, I do think a transistor is actually made of qualia because of, yeah, dual aspect monism, panpsychism is part of the field of consciousness <laughs> that I don't have any problems with that. But then there's no kind of like a automatic, you know, looping structure of the fields that will arise simply because you're computing the bits in, in a certain way. Um, the looping structures really will have mostly to do with the hardware structure and the, the hardware design, very little to do with the actual algorithm that is being performed. And so like, I think, yeah, if you were to analyze from a qualia field perspective, like a computer, you would see like a lot of interesting, strange experiences uh, in there, but they, they would have nothing to do with a chatbot. <laughs> you know, the, there's probably like a flavor of experience that has to do with a hard drive and one flavor of experience having to do with the caches, but probably nothing related to kind of an, an integrated, you know, world model that comes together to produce these answers. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean that you cannot create a, you know, non-trivial bound experience with uh, artificial hardware. I think you can, it just has to be very special hardware. Um, and for better or worse, it will have, I think, like computational advantages. So like in the long run, I, I do expect people to essentially create sentient machines, even if they're just motivated by computation, right? Like even if they just don't care about consciousness, they will stumble upon the tricks, uh, such as phenomenal binding and holistic field behavior for computation. And what I'm really trying to kind of like get a, get a, one of the reasons I'm trying to get ahead of the curve here is that essentially, I think it's going to be really, really important that if and when we make uh, actual sentient machines, that they are uh, essentially using only positive valence, that kind of they are animated by information gradients of bliss, because otherwise it just yet another way in which consciousness can get uh, enslaved <laughs> for other purposes. You know, I, it would be terrible if the world ends up being, you know, a few million people happy, but then you know, trillions of like really miserable <laughs> sentient machines, you know, that are, we have enslaved for our purposes. In the end, we're all the same field, right? Like, so that would, that would be us doing it to ourselves, like whether we realize it or not, which is incredibly tragic. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially having a theory for, okay, what kind of field configurations corresponds to a happy state? <laughs> I think it's very essential uh, to be prepared for when that actually starts happening. I don't anticipate you know, holistic field behavior to be used in computing for a couple of decades, but uh, it's, I think it's going to happen. <laughs> Interesting. So let me let me kind of pop that. So it's what what I'm hearing is like, yeah, as we start to map the uh, ideas of the you know the boundary problem and the you know uh, the field behavior and holistic field behavior and these like little looping things, as we map that into computers, we start to say, okay. Um, if you're running, you can you can look at something like a hard drive or something like these caches in RAM, the kind of you know the the the, the kind of short-term versus long-term memory. You could look at something like that and you could say, oh, the hard drive, you know, is experiencing some kind of looping adjacent stuff where it is kind of moving around a similar state where it, what it does is it puts stuff into this little spot in the memory and then pulls it out and then it like puts it back in over here and then it pulls it out or whatever and and if you look at the thing enough you're like oh that kind of looks like a little orbiting blob a little looping yep. thing a little thing with a boundary and so we yep. might call that thing conscious is that yep. right like what is that how is that conscious and and, and why <laughs> this 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 makes me feel like iit vibes these integrated information theory which is just like just shut up and compute and like look that's a conscious thing i'm like wait why is the hard drive <laughs> conscious so tell me why is the hard drive in this little loop conscious and how does that relate to my consciousness of blue you know <laughs> yes i mean i i would i would buy the bullet in this case uh but unlike iit you don't get like an insane number of paradoxes and uh well one very strange thing about like hardware consciousness is that the actual shape of the field is approximately epiphenomenal. Like it actually, there's a lot of the shape of the field that don't doesn't feed back into the further behavior of the hard drive. Whereas I think like where consciousness shines is when actually there's like a, some kind of equalization that happens of forces 
of a large experience that's sort of like is simultaneously taking together a lot of information and then prioritizing something as being salient. And that is a case where like the actual holistic nature of consciousness is being useful. But it, it doesn't mean that you need useful holistic consciousness to have consciousness. You can still have like, yeah, kind of, okay, it's making these loops. The loops are not very causally significant, but they're still there. <laughs> and they're still segmenting the, the universal field of consciousness. So yeah, they're just as much, yeah, particles in the in the body of the divine as we are, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I, I think we don't need to double click on that too much, but I, but I think, yeah, it's kind of like, and this happens with any kind of, as you push the edges of any kind of like uh, claims, it's like, okay, you know, like IIT might have experienced this worse and like, and you're experiencing it too bad, but it's like, you know, it's like, okay, why is this? And I, and I hear what you're saying, which is that if the, um, as the thing gets more and more holistic and as it kind of self-determines the stuff to take as input to then like determine where it should continue to self-replicate or whatever, that, that, that kind of a thing is kind of quote unquote more conscious, but uh, versus the other stuff, which is less consciousy, but it's kind of a gradient of consciousnessy. Um, and then what I'm hearing as well is like, yeah, this artificial um, that the as you said, these are um, uh, there's going to be some convergently evolved or kind of some kind of like forced moves, inevitable moves in design space. Um, what I'm hearing and 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 that that like force us to like that want holistic field behavior that want us to kind of yeah. have this like state of thing that says like, okay, it worked for, you know, humans and it's probably going to be a thing that works for AI as well. And that if, and when we yeah. have that, we want it to be a positive thing. Cause we don't want just a couple, um, you know, a billion humans and then a trillion kind of sad machines. So that, that feels like a yep. good, uh, research direction. And I'm excited for that as a, as a final kind of question I have here is, um, I guess Andres, um, we'll do a little bit of overrated underrated at the end, but like my first other question is what advice do you have for ambitious young people who want to get into the, the field of consciousness? Oh, amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, this is very standard advice, uh, but Hey, look, I think, um, what I've heard from a lot of professors, uh, and I have found this to be also true in, um, at QRI with like interns and and like contractors employees is that essentially um if you kind of like look at neuroscience phds um you will kind of like see a bimodal distribution in their capabilities where essentially the i mean this is kind of sad I don't, i'm not i don't mean to dunk on anybody but okay like just you know very realistically like essentially <laughs> those who studied something like computer science or math as their undergraduates or during their masters are like so much better equipped to start a neuroscience PhD than those who actually studied neuroscience as an undergraduate, right? Because all of the parts of the brain and how they're connected and so on are things you can pick up over time, but there is a kind of like critical window where like, hey, all these technical stuff, it's it would be good for your brain to kind of like sit down and learn it now. Uh, so that would be my advice. Like, uh, again, like not like a STEM supremacist or something like that, but like, do try to pick kind of the most technical field you're capable of and motivated to do. And think of that as essentially kind of a empowering your future research. Because, yeah, I mean, hiring somebody who's been reading a lot of neuroscience versus hiring somebody who has read neuroscience on the side, but is actually like a hardcore, like, you know, signal processing expert is just in general so much more empowering. Yeah, yeah, no, I like, I think that's good advice. I think that there's a, and I, I like it, as, as you said, it's just like, choose the highest level that, that you can go, you know, and I know for me personally, yeah. I was a computer science major or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't really like graduate school stuff. And I don't really, I don't really love like the more intense physics or whatever. So it's like, I chose computer science, and that was good. And it, and it helped me. And now I don't really do much computer science, but I do, I can always kind of use it within my life. And so it's a helpful tool. And so just like, you know, pushing yourself on writing or math or whatever, it's kind of like a helpful tool. So that makes sense. And I have another question for you, Andres, actually, before we go to overrated, underrated, what is your production function? Like, do you, you wake up in the morning? Do you just, <laughs> like, do you just like, you know, take a bunch of DMT and then like write some papers? <laughs> like what's kind of, what, what do you, what, 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 how do you, how do you produce stuff on the world? I, 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 it's such a good question. I, I hear from people that they perceive me as prolific. Like as some people say that my subjective feeling is that I'm like drastically underachieving. Like that's maybe, maybe they come together. I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, but that is, that is my subjective feeling of, of uh, my productivity. Um, I do try to get, you know, articles out at least, you know, once, once 
a couple of weeks, you know, like videos, uh, writings, making progress on on uh, on papers. One thing that has helped enormously is uh, I have this rule, which is, and I recommend this to anybody who's like serious about like getting more writing done. It's um, before you tackle any other task in the day uh, to spend 15 minutes writing. And, and I don't mean like writing in the sense of like, Oh, like editing or like looking for sources or quotes or something like that. Like, no, new words. Just get new words out every day. Build that as a habit. And little by little, you actually go very far with that. Like, you know, you all of a sudden you realize, wow, I have like 50 pages written on this topic and it's only been like a week because, you know, I followed this this path. Um, other than that, yeah, I... I'm doing kind of like a yeah a push on like more DACA on on things like meditation and and uh, and exercise, but <laughs> um, we'll probably see the fruits of that in in a while. Um, nice. Yeah, I definitely also prioritize my sleep quite a bit. I'm probably one of the like definitely I never I never find myself undersleeping, although I might oversleep a little bit. But just uh, I notice that like if if I don't sleep enough, that's uh, absolutely killer for the higher level cognition and actually doing progress. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I think it's, um, yeah, I, I remember when I was starting to do some meditation like five years ago or whatever, and it was like, I was sleeping, you know, seven and a half hours a night and I was, um, and that was good. But then I, I, as I was meditating, I was falling asleep and the little book yeah. was telling me, it was like, um, Hey, if you're falling asleep while meditating, that means you need to sleep more, you know? And so then yeah. I went from seven and a half to eight and now I'm perfect, you know? And so, but if I don't get, get my eight, then I'm kind of a worthless uh, human. And so that makes <laughs> sense. And I love the, um, yeah, the write, write every day. And then you will actually have a lot. I'm in a writing club and this woman has, you know, a hundred thousand oh, words because she's been in this like, you know, write every day kind of energy. Um, let's do yeah. a final little thing of overrated, underrated. So I'm going to name a thing and then you're going to say kind of a quick like, hey, is it overrated or underrated? And like one sentence on why. Um, Perfect. So uh, what is the, the hard problem of consciousness? Is that overrated or underrated? Uh, overall, I would say drastically underrated in that it's probably the most important philosophical question, but it is overrated as a frame. Uh, we have a much better frame. Mike came up with the you know eight subproblems of consciousness, or David Pierce's four subproblem. Look up um, breaking down the problem of consciousness in qualia computing. It's so much more clarifying. It helps you actually solve the problem. But I think you do need the hard problem of consciousness first to realize, oh my god, this is very weird. <laughs> so in that sense, drastically underrated in general. Cool. Yep. Got it. underrated, but yeah, the frame is a little bit overrated. Um, what do you? What about yeah. Friston's free energy principle? I would say appropriately rated. <laughs> is that an answer I can give? <laughs> no, you're forced I mean, to think... do one or the other. Oh, okay. Then I would say, then I would say overrated because the main. I mean, I, I would say like everybody would benefit. Every academic would benefit from like looking into it and thinking more about it and applying it to a lot of domains, even things such as like air currents and you know like um like erosion patterns and like you can apply it in a lot of places it's super fun but 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 it doesn't solve the binding problem and it doesn't solve consciousness and there's a lot of people who are actually under the delusion <laughs> that the free energy principle is a theory of consciousness which it absolutely is not <laughs> so in that sense overrated Nice, nice. Um, you're hurting my feelings as a, I, I as a, <laughs> a free energy principle maximalist over here. Oh, I'm so sad. Um, well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Andres. If you want to check out Andres's stuff online, um, he's on Twitter at a l g e k a l i p s o allegacalypso. Allegacalypso. Yes. What is that? <laughs> it's my initials. How do you and say then, uh, I, I say allegacalypso. Calypso is just uh, was my nickname when I was a kid. So, <laughs> got it. Algae Calypso, like a algae and then Calypso kind of. Um, and then also check out Qualia Research Institute. Um, that's qri.org. Nice. Um, you got a good uh, domain name. And yeah, if, if you're yep. a person out there who's excited by consciousness, who's excited by the fundamental nature of reality, who's excited by how psychedelics and or meditation kind of affect these things, or if you're excited by kind of a more physics and mathematical frame on this definitely kind of check them out see if you can get involved that kind of thing um anything else andres that you want to say to myself or the listeners today <laughs> uh no i mean if, if you're very excited on these topics and uh especially yeah especially if you're like um 
are like a sub, have a substantial meditation or psychedelic experience and you're in technical fields reach out because yeah we're trying to grow the network and essentially yeah conduct completely above board legal experiments on on these domains so a lot of exciting news uh are gonna be <laughs> released in the future but yeah definitely reach out we'd be very happy to chat Boom. That sounds perfect. Um, and with that, uh, thank you much. So much. thank you to thank you, Andres, for coming today. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Goodbye. And as you say, <laughs> infinite bliss, infinite bliss, baby, infinite you know, bliss. like. <laughs> <laughs>